Well, we've been working our way through the book of Acts, and time and again, the question comes up, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? In the early days, they were trying to define this in different ways for different circumstances. Before we find out how they answered that, I wonder what you would say if a neighbor asked you, what do I need to do to follow Jesus? What would you say? Does it include belonging to a church? Like, do you have to belong to a church? And, and if so, do you have to go to church? And if so, how often? Really, people want to know what's expected, what's required. Do I have to be baptized? These questions get to the core of what matters. It was easy to explain what being Christian meant 2,000 years ago when most anyone asking the question was Jewish. I know that sounds odd, but remember that our faith began as a movement within Judaism. So the very first followers of Jesus, of course, were good Jews. And all you had to say to them was, if they wanted to join the way, is this. Trust that Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Repent and be baptized. And keep being a good Jew. Which largely meant honoring the Sabbath. Keeping kosher. But what about people who weren't born Jewish? And they wanted to follow Jesus. They wanted to be part of what God was doing. What did they have to do to follow him? Would they have to become Jewish? And if so, how Jewish? Would they have to follow all of the 613 commands or just some of them? Could they be Jew-ish? And what about the most basic command of all for being Jewish, at least for men and boys? Circumcision. In the decades after the resurrection, the gospel spread. It expanded quickly outside of Israel. And it was received better by Gentiles than by Jewish people, by non-Jews, than by people who were born Jewish and practicing Jews. And this situation led to a famous debate, meeting, council gathering called the Council of Jerusalem. At that event, Jewish Christians who said that Gentiles needed to become fully Jewish to follow Jesus, argued and discussed with others who weren't so sure that Gentiles had to become Jewish first. We're going to hear about this debate in a moment, but I don't want you to tune out right now because this sounds like this obscure um, uh, argument from ancient history. This is a debate that is literally still going on today in slightly different form. If we want more people to follow Jesus, if we want to grow 
our second family, might we have to change what we say it means to follow Jesus? That's the question being discussed here. So listen for the word of God to you today. Acts 15 verse 1. Certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it's necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. Now, I know it's no surprise that it was the Pharisees who are the hardliners in this story. But we're so used to seeing Pharisees as the bad guys in scriptures, especially the gospel, that it's easy to miss that these Pharisees, wrap your head around this, these Pharisees are believers. They're Christ followers. These Pharisees loved Jesus as much as anyone. Remember, St. Paul, well, he loved Torah as a Pharisee before he began to love Jesus as his Savior. So these Jewish Christians, these Pharisees, sincerely believed that the law of Moses and the guidance for right living that that law contains, well, they saw it as a gift from God, a blessing to their children, not a burden. And they wanted Gentile believers to become part of this very same covenant that they were part of. And they wanted them to live the way they did. They had a point. At this point in time, Judaism in one form or another was already more than 1,500 years old. What enabled the Jewish people to survive as a nation through wandering in the wilderness famine and drought, victory and defeat, exile and occupation was God's love and God's law. That's what they believed, that they had survived because God has chosen us and we obey God's law. Tradition, circumcision, Sabbath, and keeping kosher was what kept them strong and enabled them to adapt to most every circumstance. Remember this, even when the temple was destroyed twice, they could continue to worship and they did it by obeying the law. They said, this is our divine worship by following God's commands. And those commands included simple daily activities, how you worked and how you rested how you ate, and how you dressed. And of course, these Pharisee believers could mention that Jesus himself said often that he hadn't come to abolish the law. Now, on the other side of the debate were three people who also had impeccable Jewish credentials. 
But they also knew the Gentiles well. Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. And they believed that Jesus' command to, to make disciples of all nations did not mean make Jews of all nations. You see the distinction there? Now, of course, Gentiles, non-Jews, we'd call them, sociologists would call them pagans today. They weren't looking for the Jewish Messiah. They had their own gods, but they were looking for a better way than the Greek and Roman gods that they had heard of, the idols that they were offering to. So Peter, Paul, and Barnabas told them about the one true God, Yahweh and Jesus' only son, and how this God cared deeply for them and deeply about who they are. So you can imagine that they loved what they heard. It must have been amazing. I, I wish I could have been there to, to see that interaction. So the apostles are explaining all this and, and the Gentiles respond, great. Oh my gosh, this is wonderful. What do we need to do to follow Jesus? Oh, no working on Saturdays? Awesome. This is great. Um, oh, what was that? No, no, no bacon or shrimp? Mm -hmm. oh, 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 wait, excuse me. We're going to have to cut what? No. You see that as the apostles are explaining what it means to follow Jesus, there came a point in the conversation where things got awkward real fast, right? The apostles knew they wanted to spread God's word, God's law, God's love. But they didn't know how to do it in a way that people could receive and bear. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord, just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence. And they listened then to Paul and Barnabas as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. So get this, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, they make a strong case, and it goes kind of like this. Hey, Jesus, the end of the Gospel of Matthew says, he wants us to go and reach everyone, make disciples of all nations, and we see that the Holy Spirit is at work in these Gentiles, even without those Gentiles becoming Jewish, and, you know, if it's grace that saves us all, why make Gentiles follow the law? The last one to speak was James. Not James, son of Zebedee, 
or James, son of Alphaeus, both disciples, but Jesus' brother, James. And I know somebody here somewhere is thinking, what? Jesus had a brother? <laughs> yeah, several, and sisters too. And not just spiritual siblings, but biological ones. Now, we don't know much about them. They only appear a few times in the Gospels. But whenever they're mentioned, it's not real positive. Because they didn't see Jesus for who he really was. And come on, that's not that uncommon. Think about your own siblings, perhaps. Maybe you've got a, a sibling who still sees you as the four-year-old who put peas in their nose and had to be taken to the ER. Even though you now out-earn everybody else in your family. So... It was only after the resurrection, only after the resurrection, when the risen Jesus appeared to his brother James, that the light went on for James. James finally could see him not just as a big brother, but as his Messiah. And when James finally saw the light, he quickly became one of the most respected and trusted leaders of the church, especially among that first generation of Christians, those Jewish believers. And James is known for being especially devoted to the law of Moses. Maybe it's because he grew up in the same home as Jesus, with a similarly devout upbringing, perhaps. Or maybe it's because as an adult, he made his home in Jerusalem, where keeping the law was what everybody did. James spoke with authority at that council because he was clearly pro-Sabbath, pro-kosher, pro-circumcision, pro-law. Verse 13. After Paul and Barnabas finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. I've reached the decision that we shouldn't trouble the Gentiles who are turning to God. But we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever's been strangled and from blood. For in every city, for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he's been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay, so... What does James say Gentiles need to do to become followers of Jesus Christ? Do they have to get circumcised? Nope. Do they have to keep kosher? Nope. Do they have to keep the Sabbath? Nope. Just don't worship idols or eat food that's been offered to idols. And don't sleep with temple prostitutes or be sexually immoral in any other way. I think what was on James's mind is that's what the pagan um, worshipers did. They engaged in those kinds of activities. James wanted these new believers to be different, to stand out. And then James says, yeah, and, and don't eat blood or meat that has any blood left in it. Because people in those days believed that the blood contained the life force of the animal from whence it came. Um, the only blood that Christ followers should drink or eat, of course, is... Jesus' own blood and body in the Lord's Supper. So I want you to hear this. James could have said, Gentiles need to become Jewish in every way, just as we are. Or in some ways, he could have picked a few things like honoring the Sabbath, the Ten Commandments, 
But he didn't. He said that if God is already treating them the same way, blessing them with the Holy Spirit, then it must be somehow okay for them to follow Jesus differently than we do. That was revolutionary at the time. It may be the single most important reason that we are Christians today. James could have kept Christianity basically Jewish, like it was for him, like he was familiar with, but he didn't. And what I want you to hear here is, is there's a generosity in his pronouncement from Peter and from Paul and Barnabas and, of course, James. These guys were old school Jews, and yet they said essentially to people like us, you know, I don't know what it's like to be you. And I'm willing to believe that it's possible that God works differently with different people because I can see that God has already blessed you. And then they say, you know, we're, we're not going to force you to follow the law. Just follow Jesus. Now, the apostles could have used their own unique relationships with Jesus. Remember, they had great credentials. Peter, of course, um, uh, Paul, the amazing things he did. They could have used their power and their privilege to exclude the ones who came afterwards. But they didn't. They were generous in welcoming others, even others whom they didn't fully understand. And, and notice their humility too. Peter, Paul, and James knew that, yeah, they had special status, but they also knew that they weren't perfect. Peter, of course, remember he denied, he let Jesus down in some awful ways. Paul persecuted Jesus' followers and presided over the killing of Stephen. James spent most of his life blind to who Jesus was. I think that somehow they knew that they were saved only because Jesus had forgiven their failings. So who were they to judge others? Throughout most of my adult life, the Christian church in America has been preoccupied and divided by questions of who can and cannot be married and who can and cannot become a pastor. And I have not always heard generosity from those making decisions about others. And I haven't always seen humility from those in power, those people who are already on the inside. And I think that's why this story of the Jerusalem Council is so important for us to hear today. It makes me wonder if we somehow have been missing what's really important. Maybe what really matters to God isn't the modern equivalent of circumcision and keeping kosher and observing the Sabbath. Maybe what matters most to God is living like Jesus in other ways. Caring for the poor and the weak, reaching outsiders, building God's kingdom in the here and now. One of the things I love about our second family is we're a congregation of multiple generations. That makes things delightful and rich, but it also leads to some challenges. Because some of us grew up with certain norms and rules and values that may well have served us well in our own time. Maybe not, but still, we cling to them, we believe in them, we think they're important. And... We happen to have people in our second family and maybe our first families too 
that are from other generations. And as we look at them, in many cases, they seem to have different norms and rules and values for all kinds of things like marriage and work. Even though they live in the same world we do, we recognize they're as different from us as Gentiles were from Jews. Expecting younger generations of Christians, Christian believers even, to love, worship, and work in the same way we did, and then to judge them for not doing it, it's just not helpful. It's not working. Come on, we know that God already loves the young people around us. Maybe our task isn't to make them more like us, but to help them to become more like Jesus. To come alongside them and offer whatever support we can. And I can tell you, we're really good at that. We're a second family full of generous and humble people. One of my most powerful moments as a pastor was helping an 80-year-old woman in our second family know that it was okay to go to her granddaughter's wedding to another woman. She didn't understand it, and she was troubled by the decision in front of her, but she also knew that she wasn't going to let her lack of understanding get in the way of her showing up for her granddaughter. And I've been blessed to baptize children in this congregation, born under all kinds of circumstances. And that's perfectly okay. It's perfectly wonderful. Yes, families matter and all these circumstances matter, at least to us. But I think we've noticed that God gives these kids the Holy Spirit just the same. And we used to exclude from the pulpit pastors who had been divorced. But you welcomed me. I'm not going to throw stones. I can't. Now, some people might think, and I get this, that, you know, the church has just been lowering its standards over the years. I don't know about that. Because is it easier to honor the Sabbath or to live like Jesus every moment? Maybe we learned 2,000 years ago that there are simply different standards for different generations, different times, and different cultures. And our challenge is having the, the generosity and the humility to say, God, these are your children. These are the people you've called. How can we help them follow Jesus? Let's pray. God, we are in this unique position of wanting to build your church, wanting to grow it, wanting to stay true to the values that have served us so well. But we need to know, Lord, what really matters. Help us to distinguish the essentials from the non-essentials. Cling to the essentials and not compromise in any way on those, but then also to let the rest go. And that's hard. It is scary. It feels almost like a betrayal of our past. But Lord, give us the courage through your Holy Spirit to lead well into this future that you are creating for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.